Welcome to Inside Divorce. My name is Hindel Grossman, the owner of the law firm called Grossman & Associates LTD, located in Newton and Nantucket, Massachusetts. Today, I am talking with Sammy Azuz from Heritage Financial, located in Westwood, Massachusetts, about finances and his new book. So welcome, Sammy. Thank you, Nandela. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, and I'm excited to talk to you again. Would you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. No, thank you. I am um, the president of Heritage Financial. Uh, we're an independent uh, wealth management firm. Uh, we work with individual clients across the country, helping them uh, build smart, cost-effective portfolios paired with detailed financial planning. And we've been fortunate to receive a lot of industry recognition from Barron's, Bloomberg, Forbes, um, and other such uh, awards uh, for being a top wealth management firm in the country. Yes, I've seen those awards. They're very impressive. And your offices are lovely. I've had the privilege of visiting you in those offices several times. Thanks, Indel. Yeah, we haven't been in there for a while. I'm looking forward to at some point being able to go back. Uh, <laughs> but uh, they are great when we get to use them, that's for sure. Yeah, well, we're recording this during the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. So both of us are operating from our respective um, recording studios, let me say, trying to do the best we can and keep our businesses going, right? Absolutely. It's been an amazing experience, really, to watch our firm uh, just in the year 2020 being able to take this entire operation remotely on uh, basically a day's notice and following uh, the governor's orders in terms of stay-at-home and essential businesses. Uh, you know, we decided on a Thursday that we were going to work remotely, and by Monday, everybody was up and running. Uh, the technology was in place, and uh, we haven't really missed a beat from an operational standpoint, which has been really, really cool to see, really exciting to to see the team still functioning at the same level and uh, interacting with clients, uh, probably more so than, than we ever have between the communications that we're sending out and the Zoom meetings, and I've been really proud of that, and it's been a silver lining to be able to connect with so many people so much more frequently uh, during this surreal moment that we're all in. Is it hard to do financial planning remotely like this? I don't think so. I think I shudder to think what would have happened if we were doing this, you know, pre-1996 and, you know, the internet and the cloud and the availability really of, of the resources that we have right now. Uh, so I don't think it's been challenging. I think it's been much more focused. There's really a couple of major things going on right now. Obviously, market volatility and the declines that people are seeing in their portfolios. And those are conversations that we're wired to have. It's what we do best in terms of kind of managing emotions and helping people stick to their long-term plans during basically the fastest market decline we've ever seen at this, at this level and the most volatile market we've really experienced. So it's focused on that, which are conversations that uh, any good advisor who's been doing this for a while, and this is really our third bear market in the last 20 years, uh, so the third bear market in my career. So you get much more focused on that, and you're also focused on some of the planning aspects that come out of recessions like this, some of the legislation that was passed, helping clients understand it and take advantage of it, and talking about their you know, personal cash flow needs. Uh, as well. So it's it's definitely not, not difficult, but it is much, much more focused. Uh, and people tend to put off some of the, you know, bigger picture things for moments when they're less concerned about their, you know, their net worth and their ability to, to, to take life back to normal. 
Yeah, well, the market certainly has been volatile. You said, I think, March 23, 2020 was the bottom of the market. Is that right? Yes, and so it was the fastest bear market we've seen and then a very quick recovery since then. Obviously, we don't know if the March 23rd lows are going to hold. We do know that investors are forward-looking people, so they are trying to anticipate what businesses will do six, nine, 12 months from now, two, three, four, five years, 10 years from now. So we also know that the, the all clear in terms of when it's a great idea to take risk again and buy more stocks or you know, keep holding on to the stocks that you have, those signals won't come from when the economy bottoms out. It will really come from the investment world kind of leading the economic world and people anticipating when the recovery will be and, and starting to uh, pick winners and losers and asset classes that they want to invest in. So it's not always intuitive. People always want to, you know, get out and then get back in when it's quote unquote safer to do so. Uh, but if you get out of the market now with the mindset that you're going to get back in when everything feels safe and comfortable and there's a vaccine and we're all going back to restaurants and sporting events and, you know, COVID-19 is, is a thing in our uh, memory banks, the market should be, you know, significantly higher by that point because this, you know, arguably induced downturn that we've had, this economic downturn, will will have been past us and uh, people will be much more excited about the investment opportunities before the economic recovery. So what we see actually and maybe feel lags behind the actual recovery because the recovery is happening on its own schedule. Yeah, so some things, you know, traditionally the market is a leading indicator, so the market anticipates economic activity, then the economic data starts to come in, and then there's lagging economic activity, things like unemployment and real estate prices historically bottom out after the market has started recovering, uh, because in a typical recession, you know, layoffs are the last thing that companies want to do, and selling your home at a distressed value is one of the last things that people want to do. So also depending on the economic data, some of it can be can be lagging the, the overall recovery as well. So that's what makes the idea of timing the market so difficult. Uh, basically impossible, yeah. I want to say so difficult, because you have to not only get the exit out correctly, and really nobody foresaw this level of downturn before it happened, you have to figure out when to get back in, all without the ability to really rely on economic data or specific points that you can consistently track that provide you signals. And now um, it seems like there's you know, these artificial, we're calling now artificial things that are going on with the PPP money coming to companies and the unemployment cash and all of these uh, shots in the arm, so to speak, from the federal government, which is trying to help the economy. So it's, while it's welcome, it gives an artificial feeling about what's to come in the future, doesn't it? Yeah, I think I understand what you mean by that, for sure. And, you know, we have been excited by the government's response to the, you know, the fiscal stimulus and, and what the Fed's been doing. You look at previous downturns or moments like this, there was a lot of partisan bickering in 2008 about things like the TARP, and should we bail out the banks or should we bail out the people who, you know, borrowed too much or, you know, you had Occupy Wall Street and the Tea Party and, you know, people had a, an agenda and people played the blame game. 
this is really driven by a virus, and I don't think there are any COVID-19 virus advocates out there that are going to argue against providing stimulus. So we've seen bipartisan action pretty quickly um, and pretty substantial. This is the biggest stimulus package, yes. I think, in inflation-adjusted terms that we've seen. They've already added to it once. You know, I expect them to do more. Now, you know, I think what you're talking about is how will we pay for this down the road and what comes next after all this bailout money and this, and that's definitely something that needs to be figured out longer term. But it's been nice to see the government act pretty quickly and aggressively and with less of the traditional bickering that you might see if there were certain industries that could be blamed for the downturn. Yeah, I understand your point. I'd love to hear about your book. It just launched, what, last week? It's already doing so well. I appreciate that, yeah. So it's been a little bit of a unique uh, circumstance uh, launching a book during uh, a shelter-in-place uh, environment. We were obviously planning a you know a big launch party and uh, having a lot of friends, family, and, and clients come in, and we've taken that virtual, a lot more uh, social media. But, yeah, the book came out this week. It's a personal finance book that's really been on my mind for about 11 years, I'm embarrassed to say, before I kind of actually got down and, and, and started working on it. And it just came out of this thought process that, you know, if you're trying to figure out what you should do with your finances, but you already understand the basics, you know that you need to be smart with debt, you know that you need to be good with credit cards, you know that you need to save for future goals but you're unsure of what else you could be doing to kind of build upon your initial success and grow your net worth and accomplish your long-term objectives. I felt like there wasn't a lot of books addressing that specific topic. There's a lot of books about getting out of debt, snowball method, credit cards. There's a lot of books that try to turn you into a brilliant foster in your spare time. There's not a lot of books that have that middle ground, or at least I felt that a long time ago. And eventually just kept thinking about it. And I think it was five and a half years ago, my family went away for two weeks in the summertime, which they typically do. And I figured I'm going to scratch out the first draft in those two weeks and uh, be done by the end of the summer. And of course, that was, you know, 65 months ago. So it took a little bit longer than I thought. Uh, but uh, I'm excited that it's out there. Uh, it was really great to work on it. And the book's divided really into three parts. Part one is growing your initial kind of capital or, or net worth. So things on career advice, minimizing your spending so that you have more money that can grow down the road, and saving on taxes for the same reason so you keep more of what you earn and, and you have more to put into that growth machine. Part two is much more about growing that capital. So there are chapters on how to use debt, how much cash to set aside in the bank, investing in a traditional stock and bond portfolio, either on your own or with an advisor, and how to find that advisor if you choose to go that route, and then investing in other things like real estate or alternative asset classes. And then part three becomes much more about how to protect your capital along the way. So there are going to be, you know, potential things that can derail your capital allocation plan, death, disability, you know, mistakes that can be made along the way. And part three is much more about financial planning, things that you can do to protect you and your family's assets along your uh, journey toward financial independence. So a lot about estate planning, insurance, how to effectively use attorneys, 
potentially, uh, you know, prenuptial uh, documents, things of that nature, uh, where I know that you and I have talked a lot about that over the years. And, you know, you put those three parts together, my, my thought and hope is, is that it comes across as a capital allocation framework that individuals can use to take their finances to the next level. Incredibly valuable information. And so well written and and approachable. I wasn't intimidated at all. I was no. I was intimidated <laughs> about to read a finance book, which uh, your book I did read, and I thought this is really makes so much sense, and at least you'd understand. So well done, Sammy. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. I'm uh, I'm excited to see it out there. We had a uh, little uh, Zoom family launch party the other night, which was fun, and. You know, I look forward to being able to uh, share it with people in person, and uh, I always appreciate the, the compliments. Thank you very much, Indel. Just when you think there are so many books on so on every topic, I mean, you still looked into it. You found a topic that wasn't covered in the way that you envisioned, and you made it happen. It shows your philosophy, too, about how you recommend people live their lives in a comfortable financial way. Yeah, I think the idea is that Effective decision-making is really something that you can master, regardless of your background, regardless of your skill set, regardless of how you earned your money or what you want to do going forward. You know, there are decisions that you can make along the way that are going to have a major impact on your overall financial success and the accomplishment of your goals. And you can learn to make those decisions. You can build a framework for yourself without having to, you know, earn a ton of money during your career, without having to be a brilliant investor on your own. You don't need to be the next Warren Buffett to be wealthy. And that's, you know, the focal point uh, and the message you're trying to get across. It's, it's currently manageable. And the only dynamic now you have to deal with is when people who are married and don't have the same vision financially, how you negotiate that part, right? Absolutely. And those conversations happen all the time. And you know, we've talked about that in the past. Um, I think it's very important for both spouses to be actively engaged in the finances. There's going to be different levels of interest, for sure. For sure. Between husband and wife and all of these things. But there definitely has to be a baseline of involvement and awareness of what is in the financial picture and some kind of consensus on the big picture goals that are being pursued and, you know, we always encourage both spouses to come every review meeting. If that's not possible, we definitely want to at least have them there most of the time uh, so that when, if anything happens, there is a, an understanding of the strategy that was in place. And there is also an opportunity to, to kind of talk through and come to some kind of consensus when there are differing views. And you see it a lot with things like risk tolerance or where people want to live or what they want to spend their money on, um, how much they want to leave to kids or grandkids, uh, treating kids equally, you know, education goals. A lot of that comes into play, and it's probably one of the one of the bigger things that we can do is keep those dialogues going. Yeah, it's, it's so important. It's, it's true that the financial issues are a deal breaker in a marriage sometimes when, A, one person doesn't know anything and then they feel very disenfranchised or B, one person has a bad idea about how they should manage the finances and then do a really bad job at it, or squander money, gambling or day trading or doing things where they're not respectful of the family's financial situation. So it's important to be, it's not, it doesn't take the romance out of the marriage, right? It's an important factor, a function of having a successful relationship. 
Yeah, and you've done a great job, uh, I know, uh, a lot of times with clients helping them rebuild their financial lives and really their entire lives, you know, post-divorce. You know, what, what are some of the things that you've seen or you would advise folks, you know, kind of heading into that in terms of the knowledge that they need to have about their, their finances to feel better about it kind of coming up the other side? Uh, well, you know, both have a greater appreciation for why it's important to be involved financially. When I represent the spouse who hasn't been involved financially and has advocated that role to the other one, and they have to suddenly make themselves face where they are financially and deal with the consequences of it, I think it, it makes them better equipped. And I think we'll think, I'll never do that again to myself. I'll never let myself be on the outside. I'll be actively involved in the management. I can understand why financial security is important. Uh, we actually just wrote an article about how surprising still is that one spouse typically knows practically nothing about what's going on financially in the relationship. You must find that too. Yeah, absolutely. There is a lot, and sometimes there are pockets of knowledge. I mean, I'll use myself as an example. I, I'm much more aware of what our portfolios look like than what our bill payments mm-hmm. look like. So you just need to be constantly cognizant of that. And in fact, you know, shortly, right before you know, the world shut down temporarily. We had a we had a meeting, my wife and I, with my estate planner, who was my first boss, you know, a really good friend. He's our trustee. And the point of the meeting was almost just to have a financial conversation, all three of us. So everybody was kind of up to speed on how things were positioned and why they were positioned. And a lot of the stuff that was in my head was out in the open. A lot of stuff that was in my wife's head was, was out in the open, just so we could almost have this little timeout and talk purely about what we have going on and where we want to go. And I think periodically those types of conversations between spouses are extremely important. I absolutely agree. Very important. All right. Is there anything else you'd like to tell the audience about yourself or Heritage or your book? Well, I would uh, like to share the blog that I've been working on that's connected to the book. Um, The blog is thebostonadvisor.com. And in that, I share a lot of uh, personal finance and investment articles that I think our readers will find interesting, some of which I've written myself, some of which are a weekly roundup that I put out, a Wednesday reading list on articles that I think are of interest. People can uh, check out that blog and subscribe to it if they want to hear more about what we are thinking and doing. And also uh, Twitter, I I post all that there, at Sam Azuz as well, S-A-M-A-Z-O-U-Z. And there's also the Boston Advisor Facebook page, which uh, I spend a lot of time sharing the, the blog content to as well. So if anybody's more interested in learning about who I am and, and what we do, they can uh, check uh, out those sources. And they can also obviously go to heritagefinancial.net to learn more about the firm that I spend most of my time around. If you'd like more information about the topics covered in our podcast, please contact us at Grossman & Associates. You'll find a competent and experienced team of compassionate, responsive, and innovative legal professionals. Email me at hindell at grossmanltd.com. My first name is spelled H-I-N-D-E-L-L. Or call us at 617-969-0069. Thank you for listening.